Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Good morning, friends. I don't know if I can just hear you in here. You guys have finally gotten that that's not a rhetorical good morning. I like that. It's uh, not as easy to hear in the main auditorium that coming back. Uh, If you have been with us over the course of the past few weeks, you know that we are in a series where we are looking at the role of prayer in accomplishing the mission of the church. The mission of the church to make immature disciples for Jesus Christ has been our focus and continues to be our focus throughout this calendar year. And so we are taking some time, admittedly too short, to consider how prayer fits into that. What is the role of our prayers in the mission of Christ? And particularly, we're doing this by looking at the prayers Paul prayed or described in his letters to churches that he was trying to minister to. He was trying to help them, encourage them, equip them to make immature disciples of Jesus. So this morning, uh, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through chapter 4, verse 8. The prayer is contained in 319 through 13, but really in order to get the context for which Paul is praying, what prompts his prayer, and then interestingly enough, Paul actually applies his prayer, tells them what he believes is going to be the outcome or what he would like to see as the outcome of his prayer in chapter 4. So let me read our text for us. We will pray and we will jump in. And again, that's 1 Thessalonians starting in chapter 3, verse 6. But now... That Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that you feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. For one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we, are t- as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And actually, I'm going to add a couple more verses. Now may... uh, Oh, right there. Uh, Now concerning brotherly love, we have no need to write anything or to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, what you are doing to all the brothers throughout throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Father in heaven, be with us this morning as we unpack this word from you. Your word is indeed truth, and apart from you, there is nothing true, there is nothing stable, there is no security in this world. It is by your grace, both common and saving, that we live. And so, Father, we pray that you are honored here among us this morning, that you are sanctified, or that you sanctify us by your word preached, that we might be established in your kingdom. Amen. So my hope is that as we investigate this text, we see basically two things, the content and purpose of Paul's prayer, and the application and ramification of Paul's prayer. In other words, what we're looking at is why Paul prays and what Paul prays, and then what he hopes or desires the application or the ramification of that prayer to be, how God will answer that prayer among the Thessalonians. So again, the content and purpose and the application and ramification. And by the way, I should say this before I get too far in, uh, because I already noticed some new faces in the crowd. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the associate pastor. If you're wondering where our lead pastor, Jim, is, uh, we had the roof blown off of our building and had a very stressful week, so we sent him to California on vacation. We just said, you should probably just spend some time with your wife for a little while. So for those of you who haven't met me, I'm Tyler, the associate pastor, and I will be uh, guiding us through this passage. So let's consider first the content and purpose of Paul's prayer. Paul prays for the Thessalonians, and his prayer is for presence, faith, love, and holiness. More specifically, Paul prays for an opportunity to be present with them, with the Thessalonians, in order that he might supply something lacking in their faith, and he prays for their love in order that the Thessalonian church might be established in holiness, that they might grow in their sanctification. So let's unpack each of these ideas. The first point to consider is presence, which is interesting because it brings us back to the nature of how God created us, the nature of what it means to be fully present. Paul has prayed for the Thessalonian church. We learned that earlier in the letter. Paul has written them this letter. He has given them his words. And this letter is with the Thessalonians because he sent Timothy to them, his companion, his protege, his Uh, the heir apparent to Paul's ministry, he commissioned to take this letter to the Thessalonians. But Paul still wants to be with them. And he says so emphatically. He says he longs to see them face to face. The implication then, if the longing to see them face to face is to supply what is lacking, is that 
the tandem of the set of experiences or the set of circumstances they have and that this letter points to is that Paul's physical presence is necessary to supply that thing. That Paul's physical or embodied presence is in, a, in essence better or more than his prayers, than his words on paper, and even the presence of his closest companion. To press that a bit more deeply, we here at Journey believe that every word of the Bible is divinely inspired, including the letter which we are reading from and thinking about today, which means Paul desires to be with them, and his desire to supply what is lacking in their faith is something that he thinks comes from his presence and not simply the words of Scripture. That though the words of Scripture are sufficient and good, that they are breathed out and inspired by God, that they are without error, that Paul's presence does something that his words on paper, even when inspired by the Spirit, cannot do. That there is a ministry in his physical presence and being in the room where they are. And he believes that because this is how God created us. He created us as physical flesh and blood human beings. Yes, with a spirit, yes, with a mind, yes, with an immaterial part of who we are. That I am more than my body, but I cannot be less than my body. And because I cannot be less than my body, my body is itself important. This is why every discipline of the Christian faith is an embodied discipline. We read scripture. What do we use? We use our minds, which process the words. We use our eyes to see the words. We might speak the words out loud using our tongues, mouths, vocal cords. The Christian faith is an earthy and embodied faith. We do not hope either in a heaven and where we are celestial spirits that simply float about on the clouds. But rather our hope is in a physical flesh and blood resurrection. But a resurrection in which all the infirmities and evils that we experience in our physical bodies have been wiped away. And we experience what it means to be human in the way that God always intended. Practically speaking, then, this means that we need to have a couple of conversations. One of them has to do with mediating technologies, which is a fancy term for technologies that are supposed to operate in place of my presence. For Paul, that technology is ink and parchment, quill and paper. But Paul himself says that this just doesn't do that Paul longs to be with them because there is something he can do that his words alone cannot. For us today, we use the technologies of video, both recording and streaming. And what we want to acknowledge is that these technologies are good and gracious gifts from our Father. That he is ordained for these technologies to exist so that we might observe and hear and learn when we cannot be present. When in the providence of God, circumstances keep us from being with one another. But what we also want to say about these technologies is that they are an accommodation. They do not fill or satisfy the actual being together. They are not taking the place of being in the room together. Such technologies are a blessing that enable our observation and communication but they are not an acceptable or sufficient replacement. 
But so often we let these technologies become a replacement because we order our lives poorly. We are overburdened and far too busy. Many people, if they looked at my schedule, they would think that I assume myself to be some sort of deity because I seem to believe that I can be all present as the way only God can. That I have meetings that seem to overlap, though they are in different geographic places, as if I can move from one place to the next without any passing of time. We are overly burdened. We are far too busy. Our lives are frenetic and frantic. And far too often, if we care to admit it, we are merely simply lazy. And when we are physically apart, we cannot supply what is lacking in the same manner as when we are physically together. Now, I want to be clear about what I mean here because letters, texts, kind words, and yes, prayers are all appreciated. So often, I can feel discouraged, and I know Jim as well can feel so when we are slaving and working and putting sweat and effort into understanding the scriptures. And we feel uh, some sort of maybe personal block or intellectual block or spiritual block between getting from us into the word so that we can excavate what is here in order to do God's will and bring them to you. And we know and are encouraged by the fact that many of you are praying for us throughout the week as we go and do that work. We are encouraged by the fact that we know that we are not alone even when we sit in our office researching and reading because of your prayers. However, because God has made us both mind and body, both immaterial and material, both physical and spiritual, because of that, to think that our bodies and our presence is unimportant is to have a Gnostic view of the Christian faith. And time to today keeps me from going into all of what Gnosticism is and why it is a tragedy and a corrupting force on Christian theology. But suffice it to say for this, Gnosticism as a spirituality that says your spirit matters and your body does not has been a heresy which the church has been fighting since its very inception. After we finish this series this week, we will pivot to looking at the first letter of John at the end of the Bible. And John is constantly using embodied language, first-person language, for his discussion of the Christian faith because he wants you to know that it has to do with what you touch and feel and see and taste. That God created your bodies and he created your senses and he created you to know him through them. And so we cannot disconnect those things. So that's our first point to consider, is that we have to think deeply about what it means to be with each other. And we have to think wisely about how we use technologies, even things like the microphone attached to my face. But there's a second thing that we need to consider, is that if Paul wanted to be with the Thessalonians, why is it that he is not with them? Why is it Timothy with this letter instead of Paul? Earlier in the letter, Paul writes this. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. 
Again, I, I wish I w- we were doing a whole preaching series through the letter of 1 Thessalonians because there's so much interesting to unpack in it, but we don't have time to do that as we consider simply this prayer that he prays. But notice two things. Paul's emphatic writing, that he endeavored to work hard, to have a task, to strive and to struggle to see it accomplished. He was eager and even more eagerly stated emphatically he had great desire he wanted to see them face to face and he says again and again this isn't something he tried once and failed and gave up on he put in effort and hit a wall he put in more effort and hit a wall and he still came back again and again trying to get to this church He's using every linguistic tool at his disposal to tell them that if it was on his effort alone, he would be with them in that room. So why isn't he? Because Satan hindered him. What this means, what is, how has Satan hindered him, we don't have time to get into and cross-reference with the book of Acts. But it's clear that Paul chalks up the circumstances he finds himself in and his failed efforts to a spiritual enemy who has resisted his ability and made roadblocks in his ability to get to this church. We tend so often to write off spiritual explanations for what we experience in our daily lives, and I want to be careful as well. I don't want to attribute to the demonic more than I see in Scripture. I want to be honest about that, because when I read Paul's letters, what I see in them is about 80% of the problems we run into come from within us, what Paul calls the flesh. However, the 20 remaining percent of the problems that we see, it seems to me if you analyze Paul's letters, he would say 10% of those come from the world outside of you and fallen and corrupted cultures. And 10% of them come from spiritual forces of darkness. And here's what that means. Satan has a vested interest in keeping us apart. We should not be too quick to chalk up the busyness, anxiousness, or laziness of our attitudes and actions to merely physical circumstances or the activities of our lives. Satan does not want you to be encouraged by the corporate singing of God's praises. Satan does not want you to be built up in the reading of God's word. He does not want you to be reminded and exhorted of the gospel and the love and holiness of God. In other words, Satan wants you to be physically separated from God and his people. Why is that? Because when we are together, we supply to each other that which is lacking in our own faiths. And when Paul prays, then, he prays not only that he be with them, but he actually asks God and Father, God himself and Jesus the Lord, to direct and guide Paul and his companions such that they can make it to the Thessalonian church, which entails, then, overcoming, undoing, and breaking through the work of Satan, which separates you from me and me from you. And this brings us back to the estuary, the primary thing which Paul is praying. What is Paul's goal in praying that he could be with them? Though Paul was demonically hindered, this, we should note this, this fits in the plan 
of God's unfolding desire. Because this is interesting. Though we should be mindful of the spiritual and the demonic, we should not be fearful. And here's why I don't think we should be fearful. Because if it wasn't for those spiritual forces of darkness keeping Paul from the Thessalonian church, you know what we wouldn't have? This letter. This divinely inspired letter, which the apostles believed and the Spirit breathed out and is important in some way contributing to our faith in a way that none of the other writings in the New Testament do. This letter is the result of Paul being spiritually blocked from being able to get to the Thessalonian church. Which tells us that even when Satan hinders us, he can only do so within the sovereign plan of our God and Father. Which means, when Satan hinders us, we can go to that sovereign God and Father to overcome the roadblocks that he puts in the way. So let us take the demonic seriously, but let us not be fearful about it. And with that said, what does this mean to supply what is lacking in the faith? Well, the first thing that it doesn't mean to supply what is lacking is that their faith is somehow deficient. And already in this prayer, Paul has, com or in this letter, Paul has commended the Thessalonians. In Thessalonians, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul says, For not only the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we have no need to say anything. Paul is saying, I thought about writing a letter to some other towns, but they already know about the faith because it has gone forth from you. So then we wouldn't say that the Thessalonian faith is weak. Furthermore, Paul himself says that he was encouraged by the Thessalonians' faith in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So to say that Paul is writing about their faith, to say he wants to supply something that is lacking, is not to say that this is a triage scenario where their faith is weak. Rather, Paul is praying for a faith that moves from strength to strength. It's also important to point out that this is not faith as in the gift of faith. Paul here is not referring to faith as opposed to doubt. Rather, Paul's reference to faith is a reference to the faith. We here at Journey Church would use the word discipleship to describe what Paul is taking place here. Paul is thinking in terms to use our language, of learning about, loving like, and living for Jesus. He wants to see them grow in those areas, in that way. And because it's a move from strength to strength, I think we can take this as an application for ourselves as well. I don't say so lightly, but it strikes me that I believe Journey is by and large a healthy church. A church that I am glad and comforted to be a part of. But every church can grow. Because on this side of Christ's return, none of us individually are going to experience moral perfection or spiritual fulfillment in the same way that we will in the kingdom. And if we're not going to experience that individually, we certainly won't experience that corporately when we get together. And so there's always a manner, there's always a place in which even healthy churches can grow. So let me just take a moment. I would submit to you a list of these seven places where every healthy church can grow. 
in learning about Jesus, we can always grow in our comprehension of the gospel. We can always gain a greater understanding of the glorious mystery and the interplay of God's holiness and God's love. God's holiness with which we, as sinners, need the gospel because we stand before a holy God, rightly judged by his justice. And God's love, which is the unbridled motivation for the gospel. Every time Paul talks about the gospel, Paul talks about it in the language of God's love. Whether it's in Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Philippians, whether he's writing to a church or whether he's writing to his protege Timothy, he always captures the gospel in the boundaries and motivation of God's love. And so we can always grow in understanding the holiness and love of God. We also can always grow in understanding the lived experience of the Christian life. Theologians throughout the years have referred to this as union with Christ. What it means to be justified before God. What it means to be sanctified or to grow in holiness. How we can experience victory in Christ over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Each of these is encapsulated in the phrase union with Christ, and we can always grow in understanding what that means. In loving like Jesus, we can always grow in Christian unity. We can always be more humble. We can always ask ourselves if we are humble enough to allow believers to disagree with us on issues that Scripture is not clear on, or that seem secondary or even tertiary of third order, we can also seek unity more and more so that we do not disagree over that which is carnal or earthly. We might have rival political philosophies or differing business or competing business interests. We can always strive for more personal holiness so that we are not divided by our sinful actions and attitudes. That is a process of Christian unity. Similarly, we can always grow in prayer. Our prayer can always be more consistent, more dependent, more frequent. There is always more to pray for. In living for Jesus, we can always grow in missional engagement. Which is to say, not that we need to do more so that God would love us, but rather, we can always be more aware of how God has orchestrated the circumstances of our lives to know who we are around. We can always be more aware in order to ask questions about our neighbors and coworkers, our friends and our family, our colleagues, the people we go to school with. We can always be more aware of whether we are planting, watering, or God willing, reaping a harvest among those who do not believe. We can be more aware of where the inroads of the gospel are in those that are close to us. And we can be more aware of the opportunities to get to know them, that we might love them more deeply. As well, theological integration. Since we are fallen persons, there is always a gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. We can always do more to shrink that gap, coming again and again to Scripture and asking what it means for our lives and taking practical steps in order to fulfill that, satisfy that, live in light of that in our daily lives. And this one might be a new word for many of you, 
But the opposite side of theological integration is we can always grow in disenculturation. If the word enculturation is how we assimilate into our culture, so you join Journey Church and we hope you enculturate into the culture of our church, you become assimilated into the culture of our church. Disenculturation is how we remove ourselves intentionally from a culture. Because each one of us comes from a particular place and each one of us experiences a fallen culture. America has a culture which is not sanctified. America is not the kingdom of heaven. The American Southwest, Arizona, has a culture. Your place of work, your school, your family, all have a culture. And on this side of heaven, no matter how godly they are, there will always be fallen and sinful aspects of those cultures. And we, if we are not intentional, will simply adopt and infuse those fallen and sinful aspects into ourselves. And so we can always do more to be aware of how we live and move and have our being in the places which God has called us. We can always grow in that. And by the way, one of the reasons why I mention that, even though it comes with an obnoxious word, disenculturation, it's not even easy to say, is because the church shines most brightly when she takes that task most seriously. The anti-slavery movement was a movement of disenculturation, where the church looked at God's word, they came to Genesis 1 pretty early on, and they went, all people are created in the image of God. And they looked around and saw places where their culture did not treat people as if they bore God's image. And they worked tirelessly to remove themselves spiritually from that culture, to mark themselves off as set apart for another culture, one not yet of this world. I think evangelical churches always need to be mindful of that. Today, we need to be disenculturated in regards to technology, politics, and individualism. With each of these seven things, by the way, if I've understood them rightly, with each of those, the primary aspect, the primary thing we have to think about is time and energy. It's not about intellect. It's not about money. It is about whether we're willing to take the time to think through scripture about what is taking place in front of us. But we live such a busy and frenetic lives, as I have already said. And I don't know if I have said it here at this church, but I have long been in the habit of trying to tell faithful Christians this. Satan, to ruin your witness, does not need to destroy you. All he needs to do is distract you. And far too many of us are far too distracted. Each of these seven areas of growth will require time and attention focus, and intentionality. But distraction will mean that we fail to grow. Now, I know that some of these, as you look at that list, they might feel big, might feel big to think about more comprehension of the gospel or disenculturation or theological integration. Let me give you a very practical way that we are hoping to help supply what is lacking in your faith as we gather together as Journey Church. Uh, we have produced this guide. Most of you got it when you came in. This is our new discipleship guide. Here's what this does. We'll explain more of it afterwards, but this guide 
will help you understand what is taking place in our church service so that as we gather together to hear God's word read and proclaimed and to sing his praises and to pray his thoughts after him, as we seek to do that, that guide will help you walk through and take what we do here on a Sunday and carry it throughout the rest of the week so that you can keep the momentum of working through those things throughout your week, that you can use it as a devotional guide. And we believe as well that when you come and gather with us, you are not able to encounter what the Spirit is doing if this is the first time you are listening to and hearing all of these things. One of the reasons why we here at Journey usually, although we have broken for, uh, from it for this four-week series, one of the reasons why we usually preach successively through books of the Bible is because then you always know what is coming next. You don't need to wait for Pastor Jim or I to stand up here and open the word and tell you where we are. We're just the next paragraph over in scripture. And so you in pre preparing to gather with God's people to worship him, to hear his word preached and proclaimed, which by the way is a method of holding Jim and I accountable to being faithful with the scriptures. You can simply read that text ahead of time because you know exactly where we'll be. By the way, next week, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, exactly where we'll be. But back to Paul's prayer. A few weeks ago, I preached through Philippians, and so we have talked quite a bit about abounding love. That's what Paul prays for next. He says he wants to be with them to supply what is lacking in their faith. And here he moves on and he says, and I pray that your love may abound more and more, increasing uh, I would encourage you, because we don't have time this morning to go deep dive through it. A few weeks ago, I preached on Philippians uh, 1, and you can go and listen to that podcast and get more out of what does Paul mean when he talks about love? And what does he have in mind when he thinks about abounding and increasing more? But let me point out a couple of things. Paul makes a connection that many of us believe is illegitimate intuitively, and that is a connection between loving and growing in holiness. Paul prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that, and the phrase so that indicates that Paul sees a causal connection, that growing in love will cause you to grow in holiness. Causal connection. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So a growth in love will lead to a growth in holiness, but it's not just a growth in love for God. This, again, is not something which we can disconnect or disembody from who we are around. This is something that takes place in community, and so Paul says that he desires them to grow in love for the brotherhood and for all. And I think I said this when I preached through Philippians, but let me just say it again here. You cannot love an idea in the same way you love a person. In part of my life, I'm an academic. I go to an academic institution, and when I get there, after having spent weeks and months thinking about an idea and putting my thoughts down on paper, you know what I do? I gather with a bunch of friends, and they all tell me why they think I'm dumb. That's what we do, and then we move on to the next guy, and it just goes around in a masochistic circle. Here's why we can do that, because what is written on the papers when we are doing that is merely an idea. But you could not do that if what was written on the paper was a description of my wife, my children, 
my church. Why? Because you do not love an idea in the same way you love people. When you love people, your desire is not to take them apart in order to make them stronger, is not to dismantle them. When you love people, the goal is to build them up. The goal is to protect. The goal is to encourage. And you can only love something that way. You can only love people in a way that is not like loving an idea when you know specific people, people with names and faces, biographies and backgrounds. We, church, must be loving to each other, which means we must know each other, where we come from and who we are. And moreover, Paul does not mean this to simply be something of, I think Pastor Jim would use the word, a holy huddle where we simply get together. Because notice Paul says, love each other and for all. Meaning that he doesn't just think about Journey Church and our 200 or so people who gather with us. But he thinks God placed you in a job or a neighborhood, a family or a school. He has put you in places where you are constantly in interaction with others, many of whom do not believe what you believe. And he has done that intentionally. And let me just say this as a public service announcement. I, as a seminary-educated pastor, if somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus shows up in my office, they've already made a certain set of decisions. My job is easy at that point. The hard part is the 90 yards prior to that, 90 being a reference to football, right? 100 yards, I'm in the last 10, just had to throw that out there, some confused looks. The 90 yards prior to that where you're moving the ball down the field and who's doing that? You. Because God providentially puts you in that person's life to know them and to love them and to plant and water the seeds of the gospel. Which is why we pray earnestly for the encouragement of a harvest. Few people will come to the seminary-trained pastor for answers today. But far more will go to a brother-in-law, a neighbor, a co-worker, a classmate, a friend. Now Jim assigned me to preach on 1 Thessalonians 3. 9 through 13, but I felt in order to get a good understanding of what Paul is desiring in terms of an answer to this prayer, we had to go beyond it. So let's turn to think about Paul's application and ramification for this prayer by looking at chapter 4. I'm going to just do a big flyover again. I wish we could go deeper in this text. We don't have time, so I'm going to do a big flyover. I'm going to do it quickly. Paul has three applications for the Thessalonian church, how he thinks this prayer can be applied and answered. And the first one is sexual purity. Paul prays for their faith, for their love, and for their holiness, which he says he prays for a gospel-worthy life among them, that they would be sanctified. And his first example is sexual purity, meaning that God, the God-ordained and God-created thing that we call sexual union is reserved for a married husband and wife because marriage is a shadow, a symbol that points to the gospel. This is why it is so important in our culture that we get marriage and sex right. 
not simply because our world gets it so dramatically wrong, but because it directs us to the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the thing. I want you to be crystal clear. When I say this, there are a lot of pathologies in our culture which I have in mind. But I also have in mind the ways in which we so often are sexual sinners and fall short of the gospel that will not show up in your newsfeed, that don't propagate themselves in your newsletters and email. Let me just give one example. Uh, Congresswoman, this is from World Magazine, uh, which is a Baptist uh, news resource. Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina addressed a prayer breakfast hosted by U.S. Senator Tim Scott, also from uh, Palomito State, last week and made headlines. Mace, who lives with her boyfriend, attempted a dose of humor by blithely noting that she rebuffed her boyfriend's sexual advances that morning because otherwise she would have been late for the prayer breakfast. I guess that's a compliment. I'm not entirely sure. The inference was obvious. Regular non-marital sex was common for Mace, but that morning the attendance of the prayer breakfast took precedence over sex. Needless to say, Miles Smith says, repentance and discipleship are an obvious need. Here's the thing. That is written by somebody who, or, well, that is about somebody who professes to be a Christian who attends an evangelical church, who if you went on their church's website and you looked at our doctrine statement and their doctrine statement, you would find few differences aside from the words used, but the meanings of the sentences and the paragraphs are fundamentally the same. From the month of January, well, I'll say from January 1st to the end of February, a different person in our congregation talking about somebody outside of our congregation came to me every single week for the first two months of the year to ask me about formerly married people who had been widowed or divorced, who were now late in life, had a boyfriend or girlfriend they were shacking up with. And they asked my thoughts on that. This confused me so much that when I explained what was going on to my wife and how I could not understand how, and by the way, this happened here in Tucson, Arizona, and it happened where I'm from in Santa Cruz, California. It happened in two different locations at two different churches from two different denominations, both evangelical, both Bible-believing, both faithful. Literally the only thing my wife and I could come up with when we were trying to figure out how so much confusion can take place even within the church is maybe we have confused people by using the term premarital sex. As in, before you got married, but these people were had been married, and this is after marital sex. It just also happens to be after marital. I thought about maybe the term extramarital sex is better, but that actually sounds more positive. Here's the level of marital sex, and we want to do extramarital sex. That's not what it means. But the point is... It was really hard to get through that sentence with my son right there. <laughs> the point is, we live in a confused culture such that even those who frequently attend church are almost as equally confused. It just so happens that our sin is not as fluorescent as the sin of the culture, and so it's easier to miss. We have to take 
sanctification and holiness seriously. That is what Paul says is God's will for the Thessalonian church, and so too his will for us. His second application is brotherly love. I wish I could say more about this, but Paul doesn't seem to need to say more because the Thessalonians are doing so well at it. He literally says, on brotherly love, I have no need to write anything more to you. So here's my only application on brotherly love. Journey Church, what would it feel like and be like, and what sort of witness would we have in Tucson if the, inspire, if the a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit could be written to us and say, Journey Church, on brotherly love, I have nothing more to write to you. You get how that grows you in holiness and sanctification and glorifies and honors God so much that I want to make a mention of it, but really on that curriculum, you have been taught by God. I have nothing more to say. What would it feel like to be a part of a church to receive that letter? Here's Paul's third application. He commends a peaceful and hardworking life. Like I, said, like I said, friends, very few people will show up at my office, and that's not just because my office is covered in a tarp, because the roof caved in. It's because of the cultural day in which we live. And so the people who have the greatest capacity to witness are actually those who are rubbing shoulders with non-believers in the workplace or the classroom every day of their lives. So Paul then commends that we ought to work as if we are working not for some secular employer, but for God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we work for him, we will work hard, we will work diligently, and we will work well such that we are a good witness to those around us. So those are Paul's three applications. And I just want to take a couple of moments and transition now to a time of prayer. We have been closing each of these services in a time of prayer for how we might missionally embody these letters. And so let me just give you a few things that you can pray for the next couple of minutes. And then after that, we are going to move to a time of taking communion together. Let's pray that we might not be hindered from being with one another. Let's pray asking for wisdom that we might use mediating technologies gratefully, but not abuse them. That we might be grateful for their ability to allow us to observe when we are providentially hindered from gathering, but we would not allow them to deform our church by usurping participation in it. Let us pray that we would grow in the faith by growing in love which produces holiness. And let us pray that we would have tangible opportunities to grow in love for each other and for our non-believing friends, family, and neighbors who God has placed us around. And since we are going to take communion afterwards, why don't we pray as well? If there's any sin burdening your heart before we go to our time of communion, take a moment and confess and repent that to God. Because 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take a couple of moments and pray for those things. Would you pray with me one more time and we'll stand and sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of your son. We thank you for how you dwelt with us and dealt with our sin. We thank you that you are present with us and that you call us together 
each week, to gather with each other, to be present in body with each other. Lord, we so often are weak and frail. We look for excuses to not gather. But you in your goodness call us anew each day. And you call us through the name of Jesus Christ, whose body and blood made it possible for us to be with you. And so we pray these things in his precious name, and we prepare to sing. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.